will please remain standing and turn with me to Psalm 78. If you're using uh, one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that starting on page 488. Uh, We're going to start by reading the first 10 verses and then verses 56 through 66 to get us started. Psalm 78, starting with verses uh, 1 through 10. Beloved saints, this is God's word. As we heard in Sunday school, God comes to us in his word. He finds us and reveals himself to us. What a beautiful image. Let us hear our God's word to us this morning. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will, I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites armed with the bow, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. Drop down with me, if you will, to verse 56. We'll read verses 56 through 66. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. But turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers, they twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places, they moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard he was full of wrath, he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and the young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and the widows, their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame. So ends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us... Pray that the Lord would indeed instruct us in our time in his word. Our most gracious God, our hearts are indeed prone to wander. Our minds are not slow to understand. We are not by nature people of your word. And so we ask that you would be among us, that you would speak to our hearts, you would illumine our minds, that you would give us ears to hear your most holy truth, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. How do you handle a psalm that's 72 verses long? I wonder how many of you looked at this and thought, great, we're going to be here till 5 p.m. 
Or perhaps you thought, he's just going to split it and deal with it over a few weeks. Well, that works for some psalms, but not this one. It really does not afford any obvious places to break it up and split it between weeks. And that's because it's a parable. A parable is a story with a point. Uh, It's told with the hope that you will learn a lesson and respond. Some parables are are made-up stories, like the prodigal son. Some are rehearsals of history and historic events with the hope that you will learn the lessons of those who have gone before you. And that's Psalm 78. It rehearses uh, a few events from Israel's history to drive home a lesson for us. Uh, More than this, that we might take that lesson, not just learn it, but pass it on to our children and future generations. It's the responsibility of every generation to teach their children the truth and to call them to pursue God. But what does it mean to pursue God? It seems that we are not always clear about this. We often define pursuing God in ways that appeal to us, to our strengths, in ways that challenge us the least and make us feel good about ourselves and don't cause too much discomfort. But what it means to pursue God is not ours to define. That's God's prerogative. And he does that for us in in this passage. You see, when it comes to God, he wants it all. God demands your life, he demands your mind, and he demands your heart. You don't get to pick and choose. And I promise there will be something in this passage to make everyone feel uncomfortable. No one will escape Psalm 78 without understanding their own failure and their own need and having that exposed. But that's okay. (laughs) Because God meets us in our need with a wonderful provision. His mercy, which we find in Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. That's the great news. Now, when I say God wants it all, what I mean is that we often tend to divide our lives into different boxes, and then we focus on one aspect. Christians like to decide. We can admit it. It's just us here. We can admit we like to decide what kind of Christian we are. You'll hear people say stuff like, I'm not one of those touchy-feely Christians. I focus on what matters, truth, and doctrine. Or you'll hear people say, I'm not into doctrine and theology. I just love Jesus. Or someone will probably proudly stand up and say, what really matters isn't your doctrine, but what kind of life you live. That you take America back for God. that That you oppose abortion, the gay agenda, and things like this. As with all the devil's lies, there's a kernel of truth in each of those. but they're taken to idolatristic extremes that do not honor God. Because God cares about how you live. God cares about what you believe. And he cares about your heart. 
What's more is you can't truly have one of these. You can't truly have one if you neglect the other two. You will have a charade, an imposter of the one you think you have. And that's what our psalm presses home. So first, let's look at your life, your obedience, how you live. There are some who say that that as long as you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live. They start with something like this. You're saved by grace, not your works. So works are optional and not required. Books have even been written to defend this. But obedience is the first and pretty much the last thing our passage addresses. God is angry with his people because they were not taking obedience to him seriously. They did not go when God said go, verse 9. They refused to obey his commands, verse 10 and 56 through 76. And so we're told they provoked his anger and brought his punishment. So angry was God that he abandoned the temple site in, in Shiloh and required an entirely new city in which to dwell. The idea that that God does not care about how you live or that obedience is optional, those ideas are so contrary to the Bible that you would literally have to ignore every page of God's word to believe that. Because your actions simply show what's inside. Your actions cannot bring you peace with God. They cannot save you. But you cannot truly belong to Jesus and not live a changed life. This is why God requires discipline in the church. Because when sin continues without a change, it tells us what is inside. It reveals what's really going on. A church that is unwilling to hold its members accountable is opposed to God. God wants obedience. He wants your life. That's not all he wants. He also wants your mind. Read with me, if you will, verses 17 through 22. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rocks so that water gushed out and streams that overflowed. Can he also give us bread and provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. We we can distinguish between what you believe and what you do, but we can't separate them. How you live is a result of what you believe. These verses we just read point out that the reason the Israelites did not obey God in the wilderness was because they did not believe him, verse 17. Despite what God had said, despite what God had done, what they had seen, they did not believe that God could provide for their needs. They did not believe that that God could protect them from the armies that they would face. And God was angry because they did not trust in his saving power. They didn't obey God because they didn't believe the truth about God. 
Because true, God-honoring obedience is impossible without sound theology. You can't obey God if you don't know God. But you already know this to be true. When is it that you disobey God? Isn't it, isn't it when you believe in your head that your ways are better than his? Isn't it when you doubt that he has the ability to care for you? When you doubt that he is good? When you doubt his love? Or when you believe that comfort is more important than what is right? If I could boil it down to one thing, it would be this. You don't obey God when you trust yourself, your wisdom, your knowledge, or your strength more than you trust God. When you place your hope in yourself, beloved, when you place your trust in in yourself, you have a fool for a savior. When we looked at Psalm 77, I told you, that it's okay to acknowledge when you're angry at God. But I also said, never stop there, as if your anger is justified. You must ask what's driving it, because it's only when, when you confess that you're angry that you learn why. It's because you want to control God, because you want to be God. And it's then that you confess it and can find a way forward. Anger with God and those who speak God's word is evidence that you're struggling to believe that what God says is true. That he is good. That he cares for his people. That he has plans for our good and not our evil. But believing truth is not important. I mean, it's not enough. It is important, but we must go farther. Read, if you will, verses 34 through 37 with me. When God killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths and they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. (laughs) There will be times when the facts are just too hard to ignore any longer, there will be times when we stop fighting against God because it's simply no longer expedient. But there are those, when that happens, who will simply flatter God with their mouths. They'll profess, true, uh, they'll profess to love God's truth. They are well-studied people. They, they can dazzle others with their knowledge. They... They can teach Sunday school. They're seen as leaders, but their hearts are far from God. And God's not fooled. He's not impressed. God tells us that that knowledge without love is an abomination. God wants your heart. He demands your heart. There is no Christian who does not love God. Love him. You may say that You know the confession, you've memorized the catechism, that your shelves are are lined with volumes and volumes of books written by austere theologians. You may be able to talk circles 
around others and debate them on fine points of theology. But I ask you only this, what demon could we not also say that of? Some of the most grievous discipline cases I have ever had to deal with have been with men who have an incredible amount of head knowledge but don't love Jesus. And they use that knowledge to manipulate and abuse and control. They were not true believers. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. True faith must go past mere agreement in the mind. And it must descend those 15 inches down to the heart. God wants your life. Obedience is important, but it's not enough. He he wants your mind. Knowledge is important, but it's not enough. God wants it all. He wants your heart as well. Now, men, I know this makes you uncomfortable. But the first and the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. God doesn't tell us to pick one. (laughs) He demands all three. So how do you hear this and not feel like you fall so far short? If God just required one of these, who of us could do it? And he requires all three? What hope is there? When you're you're truly honest, when when you set yourself your your Facebook self aside and you look at the real you in the mirror, what do you struggle to believe? In those moments when you look into your heart and you see how much you struggle to obey, to believe, to trust God, to love... Do you not in those moments feel like you are somehow different, somehow worse, more broken than everyone else? Like if people really knew who you really were, there's no chance they'd be around you. Don't you feel like you'd never be able to measure up? You'll never be able to get it together? You feel like God could never really love you. You see, one of our greatest problems is is thinking that we are the worst of sinners. One of our greatest problems is believing that grace could actually be for me and not just others. What hope is there for the worst of sinners? The recurring message through Psalm 78 intertwined with all of Israel's failure is a message of mercy and grace. Even when Israel grumbled and complained, God had mercy on them. Right at the center of the psalm, we find this. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. I'm I'm going to read that again. It's so good. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. 
and did not stir up all his wrath. You see, this is the message God wants you to take away from Psalm 78. That there is mercy for the worst of sinners. He wants you to believe this in your mind. He wants it to stir up love in your heart. And he wants it to drive you to honor him with your life. Often we fall victim to thinking that God wants us to fix everything. It's like someone who thinks they have to get perfectly clean before they can get in the shower. They delay coming to God because of their sin. As soon as I can take care of all my problems, then I'll pursue God. We think he's waiting for us to get everything sorted out before we come, but do you see the irony? Are we really tempted to rely on ourselves today so that we can rely on God tomorrow? The parable of Psalm 78 is about how bad things get when we rely on ourselves. And God says, stop. Come to me for mercy today, not tomorrow. He knows your weakness. He knows your sin. He knows your tendency to believe lies and to doubt him. He knows the fickleness of your heart, and that's why he gives you grace. Listen to the reason our passage gives for why God offers grace. The immediate verse, I already quoted verse 38 where he says, God atones for your iniquity. Look at verse 39. He remembered that you were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. This is why God offers you grace, because you need it. Because you can't do it on your own. Because your faith is weak. Because your heart wanders. Don't let your failures prevent you from running to God. Run to him all the faster. And coming to him, find grace and mercy, forgiveness, and the love of a heavenly father. Perhaps the most curious part about this psalm is how it ends. The last eight verses are about how God took the place of priority from the tribe of Joseph, whom everybody expected uh, to receive the place of priority, and he gave it to the tribe of Judah. It then centers in on, on one member of the tribe of Judah, King David, whom God raised up from the sheepfolds. David was the greatest king, in his, uh, earthly king in Israel's history. Uh, he was humble. He was small. But he chose to believe what others refused to. That God could deliver a giant into the hands of a shepherd boy. And God delighted in David, we're told, because he had a heart that delighted in God. And so David was exalted. He became king. He conquered Israel's enemies. He delivered uh, the people from oppression. You see, when Israel was in trouble, mercy came in the form of a man, David. And so David became the emblem of, of what a deliverer of God's people looks like. By the time Psalm, this psalm was written, Psalm 78, David was long in the grave. But Israel's needs were greater than ever. Not just physically, 
though they were physical. They were enslaved to a foreign nation. More importantly, though, Israel was enslaved to their sin. Their lives were filled with disobedience. Their minds were filled with doubt. And their hearts were filled with a fickleness that went after other gods. And they needed mercy more than ever. And again, God sent mercy in the form of a man. When Jesus came, the Bible says it was like David come again, but better. Everywhere David failed, Jesus succeeded. And then, as, as if taking Psalm 78 to his lips or to his life better, Jesus, being compassionate, atoned for our iniquity and did not destroy us, but restrained his anger. You see, mercy for the worst of sinners comes in the form of a man named Jesus Christ. So how do you respond to a parable like this? A story with a lesson. Because remember, the purpose of a parable is to call you to action, to respond with action. What's the correct response to a parable, to this one? First, remember that God knows you are mortal. He does not expect you to fix everything. He calls you to trust him calls you to follow him and he invites you to plumb the depths of his mercy and grace so that your heart might be captivated by just how far and wide and deep his love is toward you. See, we're told we love because he first loved us. If we want to grow in our love, we have to understand that love. He invites you to surrender all to him, knowing that you are in safe hands. And there, in surrendering, you will find something surprising. Trying to be God is wearying. Trying to control everything, fix everything, be everything, be everywhere is exhausting. There is a sweet peace that comes and saying, God, I have no idea what you are going to do or how you're going to do it, but I know that you love me. I know that you're good, and I surrender. But don't stop there. Remember where this psalm began. It's a parable for all generations. Parents, tell your children about God's mercy. You can't make them believe. You can't control their hearts, their minds, or their lives. But you can make sure they hear about who God is. That he knows their weakness. That he loves them. That he's compassionate. That he atones for their iniquity and that he restrains his anger. The Lord offers us a gift to help us learn and remember these lessons. 
verse 25 says of the, of the wilderness generation, man ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. That's a reference to the manna in the wilderness. The psalmist is saying this bread, God's provision, was meant to teach them about the God who supplies their needs. Do you remember what Jesus said when he came? He says that he is the true manna, and whoever places their trust in him will have eternal life. The bread and the wine before you uh, this morning are reminders that God's mercy came in the form of a man. The the bread and wine are, are pictures of his flesh and blood that he gave for us on the cross in order to atone, to cover over, to pay the debt of our sin, our iniquity. Jesus is the true man of the true bread of angels. And he came and he gave his life to atone for us. And so the bread and the wine are reminders that God knows your weakness, your frailty, and he loves you still. Beyond this, they remind you that if you have placed your trust in Jesus, that he lives in you and that you are not alone. And that means that you can love God with your life because it is he who gives you strength. You can love him with your mind because his word is dependable. And you can love him with your heart because he first loved you. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. Please bow your hearts and minds with me in prayer. Our gracious God, we confess that you want it all. All our hearts, all our minds, and all our lives. And rightly so, for these belong to you. Until we surrender to you, we can never find peace. Help us to daily obey, to firmly believe your word, and to diligently love you. Grant us mercy when we fail. Fix our eyes on the man in whom mercy has come, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.